0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some
1: of the world's leading medical device experts and companies.
2: Standards, standards, standards. Oh my goodness, these things... They seem like they're changing and evolving all the time, and it it seems like it's impossible to kind of keep up with what's going on. I mean, are you up to speed with the the latest, greatest on IEC 60601? What about the FDA CDRH standards program? Do you know what's going on with that? And what about the updates to the standards database and and this new ASCA program, uh, pilot program that FDA will be rolling out? Oh, my goodness. So much going on in this space. And that's why I'm thrilled uh, to have Scott Colburn with FDA and Leo Eisner with Eisner Safety Consultants on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And I'm pretty excited about this podcast because you know, it addresses a topic that my goodness, it's confusing for those of us in the medical device industry trying to bring new products to market and and you know align with all of these standards and, and guidances out there. So I have two experts on today's podcast and we're gonna talk about the latest updates on CDRH standards program and IE six zero six zero one series. So joining me today. I have uh, Leo Eisner. Leo is the principal product safety and regulatory consultant, at Eisner Safety Consultant. I, I refer to, to Leo as the, the IEC 60601 guy, so you can call him that too. So, Leo, welcome. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. It's good to be back. All right. And I also have joining us uh, Captain Scott Colburn. Uh, Scott is the director of standards and conformity Assess- assessment program at. FDA Center for Devices and Radiological Health. So, Scott, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. Great to be here. All right, and I thought we would just dive in because you know, like I've been doing this for a long time, and and even though that's the case, I still get uh, twisted and, and tied up and confused from time to time on on standards. And you know, one of the biggies, especially for for, for a lot of products uh out there these days is is this six zero six zero one standard I, I know leo you, you know you've got that that standard memorized you know i don't know how many pages it is today but i, I know you're you're the world's expert on that standard but you mentioned that there is a, a draft of six zero six zero one dash one edition three point two along with some additional collateral standards in the works can can you talk about what's going on um with this standard and and all the ancillary parts and pieces to it
1: sure john appreciate that there's a couple things i need to sort of define up front before i get into the details a little bit because otherwise i'll be repeating long terms and stuff so one thing is we have a shortlist project which is now also called the amendments project these are the issues that are being dealt with the draft that you just mentioned edition 3.2 or third edition with amendment two and all the associated collaterals. Collaterals, for those that don't know, are 60601-1-XX, like 1-2 is EMC, 1-6 is usability. Then there's the long list project, which will be the fourth edition of 601-1. And yes, that's way in the future, it's probably 2024, or later when it starts officially. Then there's lots of acronyms, which I will try to explain as I go through things. So the progress goes back to uh, 2015 in Kobe, Japan we met, and 62A, which is the subcommittee under TC62, which is the technical committee or the mothership, issued a resolution. In that resolution, the basic concept was, how are we going to figure out of these 500 plus issues that have been collected, what the criteria is for the shortlist versus list projects? And that was a long process. Also, how are we going to vote as national committees? And lots of other details. Jumping forward a little bit, in Daytona, Florida, the CAG, the Chairman's Advisory Group for 62A, which I'm not on. The members of the CAG reviewed these 500 plus items and tried to do a baseline sort. These are short list project, this is long list. Then we had to go to the national committees. And in Frankfurt, about October of 2016, 62A had a meeting and we had a live vote. Took a day and a half to go through those 500 plus items. We took two to three minutes per item to vote. It was insane. The applicable maintenance teams and working groups out of that vote were determined for the shortlist project, and we were on our way to writing the first committee draft, which is the first step in the process for existing standards.
2: So what you're yeah. telling me is uh, writing a standard takes a, uh, quite a bit of time, effort, and, and, and energy and, and pulling a lot of resources together. <laughs> That is an understatement, and one thing that's really bad about standards development
1: that I see is a lot of graying of the brain trust, and there's not a lot of replacement on the front end. So we're losing people, not gaining people in a lot of cases, because a lot of companies can't afford to have someone go to all these meetings. You know, there's the AME cost, the ANSI cost for U.S. membership to be on the committees. And then there's all the travel costs and the time and expertise outside the meeting and inside the meeting. So it, it's very expensive for companies. And it's a challenge for me, too, since I'm self-supported.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, obviously standards, um, you know, they change from time to time. And, you know, and, and I, Assume many times standards are changing to kind of keep up with state of the art. But Leo, do you have some idea or some, can you provide some explanation for, for why are, are we seeing the changes to the 60, 601-1 and the collaterals? Why is this happening now?
1: The basic reasoning is that we did Amendment 1 of 3rd Edition came out in 2012. And that was to update 3rd Edition because there were a lot of confusing aspects of it when Amendment 1 is significantly better than third edition. And I always say that, and I think FDA has agreed to that, and OSHA agrees with that a lot. So back at the end of 2015, the Secretary said, we're cutting off all issues input at that point, and we're going to start looking at what is Amendment 2, because we want to start planning things. So the line was drawn in the sand for the shortlist project for issues coming in, other than there's a couple that have been added in since, but those were urgent issues. Inputs submitted to the secretary included content generated. They did a, they, Every five years, we do a systemic review of the standards. So we did the general standard 60601-1 and the collateral standards. And that was done by the national committees giving input into the voting system in IEC. Then the working group, 14 recommendations were added as part of this, which is the interpretations group that have those there were certain issues that were published, I think up to item 230. I'm a member of this group as well. And this is one of the working groups in the shortlist project. Then Uh, Issues were collected by the Secretariat, uh, the 62A Secretariat, and also conveners over the years. And lastly, open issues since Amendment 1 work happened. The output of the national committees during the Frankfurt meeting, which I mentioned briefly, was the short list versus the long list. So the criteria for the short list project included five items. Safety gaps known problems for regulatory bodies, inconsistencies within the 601 series of standards, especially the general and collateral is what the shortlist projects focused on, technical errors, and update of key standard references. And the line in the sand for the longlist project hasn't been set yet. I see,
2: all right. So, Scott, I'm always, you know, curious, too. I mean, obviously, thank you so much for for joining us today. Um, you know, it's always great to hear, um, you know, the, the agency's perspective on on these types of topics as well. And, you know, I know there's been a ton of work. I'm sure you've been very involved and your team's been very involved in, in the consensus standards uh, database and information. But, are there any policy updates um, on the appropriate use and, and recognition of these voluntary consensus standards at FDA?
0: Yeah, John, there's been um, really a whole series of updates, uh, and I'll walk through some of them. But I want to echo Leo's uh, sentiment about you know the importance of standards cannot be understated, and you know from a regulatory agency, even just at the national level, but more importantly when we're working with global standards. Um, the global use of these by regulatory authorities is also paramount and very important. And that's kind of where a lot of the updates of our language that we're putting out in the appropriate use of voluntary consensus standards guidance comes from. In the end, we're really trying to show that, you know, our agency really values voluntary consensus standards because of the consistency, the predictability, and the credibility that they give towards making science based decisions, which helps support how do standards fit into a regulatory agency's ability to make an appropriate regulatory decision that's designed around patient safety and so all these things of how standards are developed really become a key aspect to this um, one of the things we really want to show is you know we are committed into ensuring that standards are of high quality and can be used towards regulatory purposes and FDA is one of the leading fronts in, in doing this in the medical device sector but in general just in how government government participates in standards. Um, we sit on over 660 different committees and working groups, both at the national and international level. We have over 350 expert liaisons just in CDRH alone that sit on those uh, committees on a number of different specialties and different uh, standard developing organizations across all the different modalities and processes that you can imagine. So it's quite a commitment. And to Leo's point, it takes a lot of work, and we we, we see that in, uh, in the development of these processes and products. And because of that, we also want to be a part of the ability to help lead some of these and work with our stakeholders across both industry and academia, as well as the patient advocates that are a part of this process. So it becomes very important. Um, To give you kind of an an outline of what our guidance document is about, it really stems right off from the the roots of what the program was designed under the Food and and Drug Modernization Act back in 1997, which gave us that authority to formally recognize a standard, either in all or in part, and added the ability for us to accept a formal declaration of conformity to recognize standards. And that becomes very important because that allows us to have a dialogue with our uh, sponsors by saying you know, we feel pretty confident about these standards and we'll accept the declaration of conformity with the appropriate uh, supplementary information as, as dictated by the standards um, you know, scope and the, the way the, the test methods and the results that are uh, indicated in such standards. Um, to you know, give us that opportunity to lower the regulatory burden, but also lessen the burden to our sponsors on how they describe how they met certain aspects of testing and to give us just that nice you know, confidence on, in the fact that they are using these standards to help outline a bigger picture towards the safety and performance aspects of their devices. The 21st Century Cures Act in 2016 gave us a really big lift in the ability for us to communicate a little bit more about what does it mean when a standard is recognized. And what they win is it allows us to now communicate our determination and rationale and purpose for why we are recognizing standards, whether it's a complete standard but more importantly, if there's a part of a standard that we don't recognize, we're allowed to describe a little bit about what is it that prevents us from recognizing that complete standard that we could communicate to a user of that standard. So we have a better chance of giving that first time testing correct without going back and forth for additional information or clarifications. And so 21st Century Cures allowed us to do that. It also made sure that, you know, we are training our staff on the appropriate use of standards, as well as providing industry the right pieces of information and education so they understand how to utilize our program. And so the agency is unveiling a series of different CDRH Learn modules online, as well as updating guidance documents and doing outreach activities such as this to just try to inform all of our stakeholders, including our sister agencies within the US and sister FDA CDRHs across different countries and regulatory authorities, um who will all kind of work together to try to you know improve our our uh, overall use of standards. So to really try to get to the the meat of what are some of the big changes that were've done um, going to the whole um, foundation of what's in our recognition database, we have what's called supplementary information sheets and these are documents that we have one for each standard that's recognized that lists you know the pertinent information to help a sponsor as well as review staff to understand how that standard fit into its support towards the declaration conformity as outlined by FDA's recognition. And what we've done with the um, 21st century cures and the appropriate use guidance is added in a few things to help make it a little bit easier for a a sponsor to figure out, is this standard the appropriate standard for us to use um, before they may even have a chance to purchase that standard? And so simple things like adding the scope of that standard as well as the rationale for the recognition or non-recognition or part of a standard um, is being added. And you know, not to just only add things, but we also removed a lot of aspects um, from those you know, two additions that we felt were no longer necessary. And so we were removing certain things like what the device was affected by the standard, what are the processes affected, or what's the type of standard. That's usually described right into the scope of a standard, anyway. So it's right up front in the in, a, in the more in the better defined way in which the intent of the standard was designed. And so from that, we are able to take us along and go into describing better of how the standard can apply into what we're trying to do. And I want to just highlight three areas that this guidance really kind of updates that changes. From what we've been doing in the past to be a little bit more nimble and a little bit more efficient in how standards can be useful for both the regulatory side as well as sponsor submitting. And the first one is discussing FDA's intent to recognize a standard. In the past we have always you know waited on the publication of a federal register notice that sometimes comes out maybe two times a year. Maybe if we're lucky we can get three or four out in a year but it's never predictable. We never know how long it's going to take to get through all those processes. And if you really think about it, what is it that we're trying to say? We're trying to give information to the public on a voluntary program where a sponsor may choose if they wish to use a standard for which we will accept the Declaration of Conformity. So what the guidance now is the fact that we can, in advance of the Federal Register notice, describe our intent to recognize a standard by updating our recognition database prior to the publication of a federal register notice, thereby giving sponsors and staff the opportunity to utilize that standard toward the declaration of conformity before the federal register notice goes out. And so that becomes real important, especially when we're trying to get standards up to address public health concerns or major major overarching issues like cybersecurity or certain new technologies that are coming about. And maybe just because of some administration things that are going on, federal register notices are being backlogged We now can communicate through our recognition database in a much more nimble and much more efficient way the use of those standards to support a declaration of conformity. And we feel really positive that this would really help out um, all staff and sponsors. So the intent to recognize will be one big area. On the other side, what we have also learned through the comments that came in from our stakeholders is that, you know, recognizing new standards and, and then withdrawing those older standards isn't always as easy to the manufacturer as it may seem. And while we're always trying to recognize the newest version of a standard as early as possible, we do recognize that that can have a big impact in how a sponsor's communicating the use of standards in their submissions. And therefore, what we are also instituting is transition periods for standards that are going to be withdrawn by a a newer version of a standard to which it's replacing. And so what you'll start seeing now is instead of just a complete withdrawal of a standard, immediately upon recognition of a newer standard. There will be a transition period that will be um, outlined in that outgoing standard for a period of time where both standards will be recognized. So that way if someone's submitting a a, a submission and it comes in on on a Monday, but on Friday those standards were removed, that that standard submission isn't left with a bunch of um, declarations of conformity to standards that are no longer recognized. There will be a period of time where both of those standards will be together. Um, the appropriate use of them will be explained so that, that way a manufacturer will understand how their declaration conformity will still be able to be used, even if it is a standard that is going towards um, a, a withdrawal. So depending on the type of standard, we're looking at doing different lengths of transition periods. And in the area of 60601, sponsors that have been using those standards is familiar with this type of uh, information because of the impact that, especially the most recent amendment, has had on the manufacturer's use of the risk management files and how that impacts the overall quality system. And so, but what we, we really wanted to find is where else does this impact when we do these types of withdrawals? And we found that, you know, we need to be consistent across the board. And with that, you're, you see where we are going towards on that. The last uh, the last update I really want to talk about is how we are describing and uh, really trying to imprint the culture of what is the Declaration of Conformity versus a general use of a standard. Section 514C of the Act, which our program is based upon, states that FDA will recognize standards to which we'll set the Declaration of Conformity to. And I want to make sure that that's very clear in that. It's not one of those we recognize standards that then we decide which ones we will accept the Declaration Conformity to. The Declaration Conformity is acceptable to standards that are recognized. The culture on both sides, both with sponsors and how they indicate the use of standards, um, as well as sometimes how regulatory authorities accept the Declaration Conformity doesn't always seem to have followed the intent of the law. The guidance resets that to ensure that, you know, if you are utilizing a standard that is recognized by the agency and using it in accordance with that recognition, will accept declarations of conformity to that standard. But what we've also added is that when we speak about what is a declaration of conformity, we're speaking it into the terms of how it is actually defined in the ISO IEC standard 17,050-1 and the supplemental information that is provided in the dash two of that standard. And we feel that this will allow us to get a lot more um, in line with how other regulatory authorities use a declaration of conformity by outlining the general requirements of what are those elements, as well as the supporting documentation to support such declarations. Because as we know, most standards do not lend themselves to just a I I declare conformance to standard full stop signed by the responsible uh, individual. There's a lot of information that needs to be supporting the documentation of that declaration because of maybe different options that are employed or the, the endpoints of the test methods are not implicit in the standard. And a number of other potential issues. The guide the guidance here helps outline what what is the level of information that we would expect to see from the manufacturer to adequately support the declaration of conformity to a standard associated in a submission. So I think I'll hold there for updates. There are a few other things like that, but these are the main impact ones that I think are of most importance to us.
2: Uh, well, I appreciate you sharing those insights. And folks, I just want to remind you that uh, we're talking with uh, Scott Colburn with FDA CDRH. Scott's uh, very involved with standards and Conformity Assessment Program at FDA, and also talking with uh, Leo Eisner. Uh, Leo is with the Eisner Safety Consultants, and you can refer to him as the 60601 guy. But uh, uh, very insightful. And, and, you know, I I always like to bring this back to, you know, why does this matter? And a a lot of our listeners, I I know, are very active in bringing new products to market. And, and, uh, you know, some people, I just... I assume that they they don't have a, an appreciation for the value that that standards can play in their you know product development efforts and and Leo and Scott, you both have provided some insights to that but you know maybe you know I guess kind of in that spirit in that vein so leo I'm, I'll start with you a little bit on this so obviously you're you're very involved in six zero six zero one. Why should I be paying attention to to what's going on with the changes to the standard uh, as a medical device uh, company? Why does this matter so much? I mean, I know that these things change every so often, but but still what? Who cares, right?
1: Well, you probably would care as a design manufacturer, design developer, because as things change, that's going to affect your requirements, your product specifications, your requirements, inputs... Uh, the whole process for your design development process. So there's a bunch of changes uh, going on in Amendment 2, and some are significant, um, including updating some of the normative references. So normative references are the standards that we refer to in 60601-1, for example. And so 14971, the risk management standard for all medical devices, not just electrical, is being updated currently uh, to third edition. It looks like currently it's going to get published around December 2019. It's a rough date. Uh, that's getting referenced in Amendment 2 in the shortlist project. S- same with uh, 62304 is going through a significant change to second edition for them. And it's health software now instead of just software or medical software, I think. And there were major issues with this uh, last CDV vote. So I heard literally in the last few days, we're talking about possibly a third committee draft, which is unusual that uh, going anything past a second committee draft, if even doing the second committee draft. So I suspect the, September 2019 publication date that they show on the website currently will shift. And depending how the shortlist project falls out, which now I heard yesterday, is shifting by another seven or eight months. We're talking June through August of 2020 now getting published. We might be able to still sneak in the 62304 second edition, but it depends on the timing there. Then there's usability. IEC 62366-1 will be updated as well. But for 601-1, it's just in the definition section. It's the usability of medical electrical equipment standard that's going to reference it a lot more, which is the 60601-1-6. I know it's a mouthful. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's helpful. I mean, and I think, you know, it's, it's, you got to keep your finger on the pulse enough to know where these things are moving. Um, But obviously some of those things that, that you mentioned, I mean, we're talking a year or longer before we would expect to see, you know, these updates. And, and I guess, do you have any tips or advice for, for a medical device company who, you know, maybe they're in the midst of product development right now. And, you know, they don't anticipate doing a submission for, let's say, 12 or 18 months from now. I mean, how important are these changes to these standards going to be to the thing that they're working on right now?
1: It really depends on the country that you're dealing with, how the standards apply. Because in the U.S. and Canada, once you submit, as long as you don't change your product In the future, which you will over time, of course, you don't have to update to the most current version of standard for that country. Like Scott said, FDA has the recognized consensus database. Health Canada has a list of standards, harmonized standards that are listed which For 601 is so far behind state of the art; it's ridiculous, and that's a political issue that I'm not going to get into. It's not worth it today. Um, well,
2: but that, no, but that's a good, really good point. I mean, you talk about state of the art. I mean, by the time a standard becomes published. You know, it, it's got some age to it. And, and so, you know. <laughs> yes. All right. No and, question uh, <laughs> about that. <laughs> but I think that's important for companies to understand who are listening to this is, you know, a, a standard, at least in my very simplistic way of applying uh, what it means is it's an accepted practice. It's an uh, an accepted way of doing things, so to speak. And and Scott, you know, you, you mentioned it a couple of times a moment ago about the dec- declaration of conformity. And you know, having quite a bit of experience putting together five, ten Ks, pre submissions things of that nature, in my past, I know how important that declaration of conformity can be. So, can you maybe speak to that just a little bit?
0: Well, I mean, the declaration of conformity, and I mean by definition, is that. And it's a you know, it's a legal statement. It's a responsible statement, and it's showing that not only did you. You know, just take the standard and, and apply it to how you feel it fits, but you're also following the standard in accordance with its intent for what how a declaration would be accepted. And in the United States, the declaration of conformity when in, especially in the regulatory environment the regulatory environment is a legal statement. It is a legal statement that is you know, responsible by the organization who is making it indicating that it is truthfully being done in accordance with how the outline of that standard is done. And that way it becomes a a confidence relationship builder in terms of understanding how testing was conducted, was it done in accordance with how the scope of that document was was there, and how does that fit in then to the overall picture? One thing I always do say is while a declaration of conformity is paramount to how standards are used and their importance, it... in and of itself is not a clearance or an approval to a product, but it does really start defining how the pieces of that puzzle are being filled in through the use of standards. And in certain product areas, and especially in the 60601 space where we start having particulars to certain areas that do a really nice job of walking through all the essential performance and outlining the basic safety of how that device will be conducting, and doing the appropriate work of how the, the most recent amendment of, um, applies risk management, you can get really close to describing all the necessary features of what's met, needed to get them um, through your submission by the appropriate use of those standards. And your declaration conformity is your pathway to describe how you met that standard appropriately.
2: Yeah, and, and I may take it a, a step further, Scott. And Folks, if you have a device that you're developing, like for example, where it's an electrical medical device and you do not have a declaration of conformity to 60601 and the applicable parts and, and pieces that, that uh, uh, may apply to your product, it's it's going to do more than raise an eyebrow when it gets to an FDA reviewer. I mean, like Scott illustrated or, or mentioned, you know, this is... This is important because it is an accepted series of activities. It's, it, it, sometimes it even describes specific test methods that, that one uh, should do to, to be able to, to demonstrate that a certain aspect has been addressed. So uh, if your device uh, is electrical uh, in nature and you have not uh, done a declaration of conformity to 60601, it's gonna raise a flag.
0: Well, I mean, more importantly, too, what we're looking at in um, the use of the series is the appropriate use. If you have a collateral, that collateral standard or the particular standard, that particular standard will call out the relevant collaterals and how to use the base standard to establish your essential performance. Um, what we want to see is how you appropriately apply in that particular standard to try to really demonstrate. Um, how you've uh, defined your basic safety and essential performance. That becomes a really important aspect because that's where the agency starts seeing uh, variations in how a manufacturer or even a testing lab that maybe they're contracting with applies that process. And so, if we get people to appropriately use the right standards and defining their criteria, it allows us to have that better understanding versus if they're. Um, just using the Dash 1 standard and kind of not really mapping their product to how it was addressed in the use of that standard, we get a lot of variability. And of course, with that, you start seeing questions coming back, which only slows the process. And we want to try to not to do that when we're using standards. The whole idea of recognizing standards is to lower burden on both parties as much as possible to get to the areas that standards don't address.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and Scott, you mentioned something a moment ago about the FDA consensus standards database. And and folks, uh, this uh, consensus standards database has come a long way in recent years. So, Scott, w- whatever role you played in that, thank you. Uh, efforts uh, sh- sh- should certainly be applauded on that. But, Scott, you, you made a really interesting point earlier because, Leo, you, you could tell us all about how how expensive and, you know, if you were to, to go out and purchase standards, I mean, I, I wouldn't advise that uh, because it can get very very expensive very quickly, but I would advise going to the consensus standards database as kind of that first stop to, you know, evaluate, okay, what are the recognized standards? And that one two-page summary that that Scott referred to is really, uh, you know, a great source for you to, to identify uh, possible standards that may apply to the things that you're doing. So, Leo, Scott, do you have any other tips or, or advice for people to, to try to determine which standards apply and, and how to go about assessing and evaluate, evaluating those rather than just buying them? Sure.
1: Uh, this is Leo. The first thing I do a lot of times will scan the IEC and also the ISO websites, uh, putting in terms that are common to the product, like infection pump or infusion. Some products aren't fully infusion pumps, but I've seen clients use parts of the standard. The other is there's the guidance database in FDA, which is expensive. Um, The search terms are a little more rigid sometimes um, from what I've seen from personal use that you might have to try multiple shots at it. And also going to the standards database on the FDA website and putting in terms that are common to your product uh, that are particular to your product, because there's a lot of products out there that use multiple particular standards, like ECG and uh, SPO2, et cetera, that you need to go searching through the sites, uh, the regulators that you want to work with, the uh, standards, databases that are out there, IEC and ISO, you can see the scope of a standard. And the scope of a standard will give you a pretty good idea if that's going to apply or not. The only drawback that I hate about IEC and ISO, well, not only, I should say, one of them, is that they have the scope, but the defined term is later than standard. So unless you really know what that scope is, it's hard to evaluate, is that standard gonna fully apply or partly apply to my device sometimes, which is a struggle. So at that point, you may wanna try to contact either a test lab or consultant or some other standards development expert out there
2: yeah, and and I was just made aware of this program that's at FDA recently, and and I, I'll be honest, I didn't know it <laughs> existed, but um, Scott, I don't know I'm putting you on the spot here, but are you familiar with the DiCE organization within FDA?
0: Yes, yeah that's our our consumer assistance group, and you know they're there to try to help answer and if they can't answer field questions that come in from from uh, any stakeholder, really. Yeah. And uh, a, lot of them doing, a lot of them end up coming towards the standards arena. Um, yeah. You know, because we're kind of a catch all for a lot of different questions. Um, but yeah, it's a very helpful resource uh, that we would, would use. And, you know, and a lot of times, too, there's ways to contact different parts of the pre market office to see if you need to come in and ask for some formal questions where you can get, you know, an official response back as well. And uh, that's through the pre-submission process that, that is available. So if you're planning to do a 510K, but you're not quite sure of how certain things might apply, you may want to think earlier on in your development process about having a formal pre-submission come in or sub as they call it. And that helps open up doors of communication and show that you're a responsible organization as well that really care about trying to uh, communicate what you've done and, and to kind of know as well what other things that you might need to do that aren't apparent. Um, in the you know standards area, or maybe what's listed in the guidance that might be a little bit older and or your product has newer technologies, and you just need to figure out how can I apply these tools to get the right level of information to support a a, um, a positive regulatory decision.
2: yeah, that's, that's those are really good tips. so I've, uh, Scott, I am I, um, I know we're doing a um, a webinar with you and with Leo uh, later this year. On the ASCA program, and you know, I'm I'm told ASCA is kind of a buzzword from FDA lately. Can you maybe explain a little bit about what ASCA is and and what is significant with this new pilot program?
0: Yes, yeah, I'd be happy to. We're really excited about this new program that we have. um, You know, abbreviated under ASCA. ASCA stands for the Accreditation Scheme for Conformity Assessment. Um, Overall, it's designed to improve the pre-market review process by increasing confidence in and reliance upon the declarations of conformity to certain FDA-recognized standards in a voluntary pilot program. I will say again, it is a pilot program. It's designed to figure out how can the agency improve its confidence and understanding and initiate new areas of communication with, um, with stakeholders that we don't regulate. And what I'm speaking to are the testing laboratory community, and when we're speaking about accreditation and accredited labs, the accreditation bodies um, in that community, we really have only experienced relationships and how the products are tested to standards by going directly to the manufacturer. And with most manufacturers, as we know, being small manufacturers, less than 50 people, a lot of times testing is conducted in a third-party environment. And in many of those cases, those are an accredited organization. And we really have no appreciation or understanding of how that is impacted. And sometimes we don't even see how that's translated in a pre-market review submission. So the idea of this program is to capitalize upon the increasingly prominent role that standards play in regulatory science and practice. And we'll work with accreditation bodies to help understand how are they determining that testing labs are competent underneath their scope of accreditation to the standards that we're trying to focus on and try to see what we can do by building a relationship, providing information and even education to those laboratories. So that way, when they go into contract with a manufacturer and are doing testing to certain standards, they have that perspective of what the regulatory agency is looking for and how things are tested. Because as we know, in the 60601 world, that's not a standard that's written like a a recipe in a cookbook. It has a lot of options out there for you to consider. And when you have to do that, we wanna make sure that the labs are clearly able to provide a a test report that reflects how a manufacturer has defined their essential performance, for example, or why certain test methods were chosen over others, and how does that fit into the bigger picture so a manufacturer can take that information, make an appropriate declaration of conformity, and the, the agency having confidence in that approach of how the um, testing is done. Um, the need, what we're hoping for is you know, the need for consultations internally and the regulatory side, you know the request for complete test report reviews and additional information will diminish as our confidence in testing lab capabilities grows and how manufacturers are appropriately utilizing those laboratories towards certain standards. And both FDA manufacturers will benefit from the use of uniform declarations of conformity with that ultimate goal. What we always speak to is that one test, test ones use everywhere.
2: Yeah, that's that's, that's an exciting program. And and folks, I encourage you to uh, pay attention to what we're doing at Greenlight Guru, um, because as I mentioned, we are going to be doing a webinar later this year on the ASCA program uh, with both Leo and Scott. And I, I guess... Uh, Gentlemen, before we wrap up today's session, any last-minute tips or pointers that you'd like to offer our audience uh, in the meantime?
1: Um, One I would uh, bring up, which uh, Scott and I have talked about many times, especially around the ASCA program, is that FDA has gotten more focused on the central performance of the 601 series of standards, including... The basic or general standard 60601-1. And Scott mentioned briefly that they're looking at the test lab has looked at an analysis that the factor has done showing why there is or isn't essential performance. If there isn't, there better be really good justification. And that analysis will be looked at by the FDA, almost guaranteed. Because I've had several projects in the last two or three years, I think, that have come about just because of essential performance questions from the FDA. So that's one really big concept to be aware of, I think.
2: All right, great. Scott, any last minute tips or, or pointers for our listeners?
0: Um, I think to add on to what Leo said, but it's just you know, kind of listen to what the whole theme of what everything's been talking about. You know, The whole purpose of what we're trying to do is improve the relationship of how the agency understands and sees the appropriate use of how risk management is applied into the variety of different settings. And we know 60601 has a huge foundation around the use of ISO 14971 in risk management. But this goes across almost all standards and really at the crutch of how regulatory science for assessing substantial equivalence and safety effectiveness is based upon the assessment of risk. And what we're really trying to do is improve the internal and external understanding of appropriately applying that both to standards as well as to just the overall process, and it kind of then allows us to use all the different resources better, whether it's using guidance documents or other standards that may or may not be cited within a parent standard. And so this is really part of that genesis. The idea of ASCA gets us involved in the areas of, of testing and the testing environments. We've been very much involved over several decades in the development of standards, and we have a great history of recognizing standards. We want to bring that up to the next level by doing the same thing with the relationship and the testing community so we can help provide any perspective. But just as much of importance as understanding the rigors of what is an accreditation process entail what does that mean for its quality of testing and how data then can be used to help expedite regulatory decisions
2: ter- terrific comments scott and, and folks i want to thank uh, scott colburn scott is the director of standards and conformity assessment program at fda cdrh and yeah you know, as you probably have picked up from from scott giving a kind of a glimpse of the askout pilot program and if you've been paying attention to a lot of the other pilot programs that are uh, in progress at, at the agency right now, this is a new FDA. This isn't the FDA from from ten or even five years ago. It's a much more collaborative, much more progressive organization, and you know it's really an, out there to to try to bring new technologies to the market to to help improve patients' lives, so, which is likely very much in alignment with what many of you are trying to do with the products that you're designing and developing. So FDA is very much a collaborative partner with industry these days. So pay attention to these pilot programs because they are uh, out there to try to make life a little bit easier for all of us and ultimately help... Help improve uh, patients' lives. I also want to thank Leo Eisner. Uh, folks, he is the IEC 60601 guy. If you have any questions about timing and, and the nuances and the specifics of uh, 60601 and, and all the collateral standards that are impacted by, by that series, I would encourage you to reach out to, to Leo as well. You can find him uh, very easily. Go to Eisner Safety, E I S N E R Safety.com and uh, learn more about what he's doing. But gentlemen, thank you so much for being guests on the Global Medical Device podcast today.
0: Thanks, John. Thank you, John. It's our pleasure.